0: episode number 38 of the media narrative podcast i'm rob hoschild
1: i think that this idea of you know the podcast without you know you know let's talk you know let's let's be free let's let's communicate and not sell ads or sell ourselves i mean i'm not here to sell myself
0: charles giuliano has done it all journalist music critic, artist, art historian and curator, photographer, online media publisher, and more. He even invented the term gonzo, later associated with Hunter S. Thompson. Giuliano also witnessed and reported on much of the tumult that erupted around Boston decades ago when counterculture movements that originated in San Francisco in the late 60s shaped life in the capital of Massachusetts. His latest book, Boston Counterculture 1968-1980s, is an oral history of those times, featuring new interviews with the era's leading journalists, radio hosts, musicians, and others. In the book, Giuliano displays a gonzo approach to interviewing. Because he was on the ground then, he and his subjects dig all the way into the details and sometimes the disagreements of the day. In fact, sometimes he and I even trade punches, metaphorically speaking, about music and a few other topics. But that's part of what made it so much fun to hang out with the guy. During our conversation, Charles Giuliano talked about the massive influence of the media people and musicians who held sway at the time. He talked about fights in the newsrooms. And also about the day when some undercover lawman tried to trick him into committing an act of violence in the middle of a Vietnam protest. It was a really fascinating way to spend an hour. I think you'll agree. I wonder if we could start first by if you can just describe sort of what Boston felt like in 1968 in the late 60s. What was sort of the general vibe of the city, if you can if you can describe it that way?
1: Well, for one thing, I'm a native Bostonian, so, and I had uh, lived in New York for three years, and I came home in, in the spring of 1968, and I started working for... I had been writing for the Underground Press, and I started writing for Avatar in, in the summer of 68. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine, You know, we're talking about these peak expo- experiences. It's 1968, in its entirety, every day, every moment, was a peak experience. I mean, I don't think there has been a year, there was not a year like it in the entire 20th century. There was so much going on in terms of, you know, a civil rights movement, uh, 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 you know, the war in Vietnam, protests, you know, just the sense of agitation. And that um, I was at that point 28. I graduated from Brandeis. And there was a feeling, there was a radical feeling of the ultra left that we were really going to change the world Mm -hmm. and and perhaps to some extent we did. And so, and then why Boston? Well, Boston, you know, you know, part of the point of this book is that Boston is so underappreciated. You know, San Francisco gets credit for the summer of love, 1967, the San Francisco bands, uh, Fillmore, uh, Bill Graham. I mean, the music scene was amazing. Boston at that point was slow. You didn't have that. Mm-hmm. You know there was
0: that, but that started to happen. And why is Boston so under-recognized in comparison to the San Francisco or Greenwich Village, be, even for be, that matter? Because New York is four
1: and a half hours away, mm. and it's the it's the Yankees Red Sox thing. <laughs> you know, I mean and and why the hell did they trade Babe Ruth? <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know. <coughs> oh, <coughs> it's the curse of the bambino that's it, Yeah, this there
1: you know, essentially and and Boston
0: is a, a kind of self-effacing
1: town. That's you true. know, there's no Broadway in Boston. I mean, Boston is a university town. It's a thoughtful community. I mean, and what made Boston unique with this, you know, counterculture phenomenon was that it had it no, you know, its tenth in the nation in terms of population, but if you look at youth culture, it's not hmm. it's like because n- number one just it, I don't know it. if it's number one, but there's two hundred and fifty thousand college students in metropolitan Boston. Yeah. Then if you if you put the tip of the compass and draw a circle, you know, like fifty miles around, you've got UMass Amherst, you've got Worcester, you know, you've got Springfield. So you've got this huge student population. That Mindish, when when he was building his empire, he and had Stephen Mindish. Stephen Mindish. Boston uh, Phoenix eventually. Boston Phoenix, but he had he had the he had a Providence Phoenix, he had a Portland Phoenix, mm-hmm. Cambridge. Uh, he had the Cambridge. Well, it started with the Cambridge Phoenix, mm-hmm. but but in other words, these entrepreneurs like Ray Reapin, came to town. He founded the Boston Tea Party because he said, you know, there's all these bands. They have to play somewhere, yeah, and so he found this venue down the south end he actually took it over from the Fort Hill community they had it as the cinema tech mm-hmm. and uh, so he founded the rock club he made Steve Nelson the manager for the first year um, then he moved on and and bought into the Cambridge Phoenix became a ki- kind of partner and bought out somebody and so he had a he had a a, a, a rock club and a and a newspaper and then he talked T. Mitchell Hastings into changing the format of WBCN from classical to all rock Mm -hmm. and then at that point Ray was very entrepreneurial and he he realized that he wanted to have young DJs so these guys came in from Tufts Radio and MIT Radio and uh, WHRB and so on and so forth that they became the core of these new young DJs and they let them go in terms of, you know, they they weren't playing from top forty playlists, they were playing album-oriented rock. They could play whatever they wanted. That was really new at that time. Absolutely. Well, that's a good question because it is it K San in San Francisco is it uh is it Uncle
0: right that was fascinating i worked at w b u r oh, at one okay. point i had no idea about that part of its oh, history yeah. either that there was an adventurous late night music program right. No, there right well, well. The,
1: that's the john Hawksfeld mm-hmm. chapter of the book which i didn't really know about i i didn't hear w i didn't hear uncle t because i came he had kind of faded out when i was back in boston in 68 but uh, but k may have invented it, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, and tapes of those broadcasts came here, and that's what Reapin listened to, and that's what Reapen said. Reapon was smart enough to know, this is where I want to go. Mm-hmm. And so when album-oriented rock came in, then all of a sudden the record companies have a way to break and promote acts that go beyond top 40. Right. And so Boston becomes the breakout town for the British invasion where mm-hmm. they're going to play. So Led Zeppelin plays you know a 3-hour set at the tea party. Mm-hmm. They they had you know they didn't have the, and they jammed they just played over and over and over and over yeah, again yeah
0: it's pretty funny that all these british bands were playing at a place called the boston tea party that's the irony of that but yeah and and you know you talk about the new york boston rivalry this was one thing uh, the velvet underground used to play the the in boston all the time at the tea party all the time right. <laughs> it's supposedly more than they played in new that's, york that's that's absolutely correct and, and steve nelson would
1: tell you chapter verse about that yeah that uh that uh the tea party became like the real home for the velvet underground, mm-hmm. um I saw the velvets in New York. they were the exploding exploding plastic inevitable, right. and at that point they were under the umbrella of uh Andy Warhol, and they right. were playing at a club in saint Mark's place called the Dom mm-hmm. and uh you know they were touring and they were doing gigs, but they kind of found a niche in boston mm-hmm. and then when Steve started uh the The uh, Woodrow's Ballroom in Worcester, or environment of
0: Worcester, they played there a lot. Mm. So, yeah, they did break out here. So, to talk about the alternative media uh, of Boston, you worked at Avatar, you worked at several publications. I wonder if you could just walk us through your path through the alternative media landscape and what the role was of the alternative media at that time. What did they do? What did they cover? How did they influence
1: well um that's a that's a big one and it's hard yeah. to break it down and okay. do you know like bite-sized pieces <laughs> but again one of one of the things about being an autodidact is that that period lent itself to it mm. you know in the sense that you know a young person could at that time say i'm gonna start a rock and roll band i'm gonna start a newspaper i'm gonna make a movie i'm gonna I'm gonna, you know, do all these things that now, you have to go to Berkeley College of Music, or you have to go to, you know, the School of Fine Arts. Uh, uh, you know, here that you've got to go to, you know, you've got to go to the university before you can get an internship. Mm-hmm. Whereas in those days, you you walked into the office and okay, you do that. You know, yeah. you know, go over there and you know, or you know, we're putting out an edition. Go out and write me a story. You know, mm-hmm. so. In that sense I I was able to come into that situation uh with some skills enough to talk my way into the newsroom and this just through the process of attrition and you know the the loudest voice in the room, you become the editor. <laughs> <laughs> Hang around long enough you become the editor. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. And which which meant, you know, essentially getting into brawls and shouting matches and fist mm-hmm. fights and, you know, uh, holding down your turf. And really? You would get into actual brawls in the oh newsroom? Yeah. Oh over, yeah. o- over what? Well, for example, when uh, Fort Hill, you know, kind of pulled out of the Avatar. Right. Because Mel Lyman was, you know, onto another astral plane. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of abandoned it. And it's a long story about how it started, which is very complicated. So, you know, essentially, you know, there was there was a place and uh, there was a vacuum and I stepped in and, uh, you know, there was no editor and there was no, but I coordinated an issue, you know, and pulled these elements together and they were fistfights mm-hmm. over, you know, I want my story and this and that and real struggles, you know, mm-hmm. like amazing warfare, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, it was like to go in and to go to the office was combat. Wow. And um so finally uh we pulled together this issue and you know uh um uh you know the idea was that it was not going to be Avatar, uh even though it was the office I mean it was Avatar, but it wasn't going to officially be Avatar. And uh so I designed a cover that was an I Ching mm-hmm. uh that we all threw together, you know, communally, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever. And then this wonderful architect designed a centerpiece f- center with all of our n- hands together and, you know, like f- prints of our hands and beautiful text. It was an exquisite issue. It was, I would say it was probably the most aesthetically beautiful, mm. innovative, and spiritual issue ever published in the underground press. Mm. Ever. Mm. I'm talking San Francisco Oracle and all of them. It was, a, it was an ascendant issue. And Fort Hill freaked out, came down, raided the office in the middle of the night, and literally confiscated the paper, initially locked it into the tower at, at Fort Hill, and ultimately sold the issue for scrap. Mm-hmm. You know, like 25 pieces of silver. And that, in a sense, was you know, you know so defeating that, you know, you, you, something like that, you put out such an extraordinary effort, and it comes, it explodes in your face. Yeah. Um, you come back to the game, it's a motivator. Mm-hmm. You know, you live to fight another day, and Dave Wilson came back, and that summer we put out uh, a bunch of issues of Avatar, and then by that fall, Dave said, I'm, I'm leaving this, I'm going back to editing broadside full-time, I, w- I needed a gig. I went to Boston After Dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, my former uh, Brandeis editor, Arnie Reisman, hired me as the art director. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> for which I was not qualified. And so well, You studied art in school? Yeah. A little yeah, bit different at a newspaper, <laughs> I well, suppose. Well, you know, I, I had we had put out some issues. So, so I um, had a few basic skills, but there was a young woman that I worked for that knew how to put out the paper. And so quite wisely, she became the art director. Um, I essentially was fired from that, and but retained to become the art critic. Mm-hmm. So I put out a column, and uh, and then eventually uh, something opened up, and I became the uh, jazz and rock and roll critic at the Herald Traveler. And so you know, again, you know, with no qualifications, but just being there mm-hmm. and being kind of assertive and you know eager and willing to to do the work and do and work hard.
0: And being innovative, you, you get in there. You and get, did you make a decent living at that time? Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> you know, uh no,
1: absolutely not. You know, uh we ate a lot of brown rice <laughs> and and uh lived in Roxbury in cheap apartments, yeah. you know. And nobody money it was not about money, you right. know. It was about um it was about, you know, doing the good work and mm-hmm.
0: And the empowerment, you know, I, I used to love seeing the paper come out. By the way, for anybody listening to this who wants to know more about that whole Avatar thing in the Fort Hill community and Mel Lyman, I interviewed Ryan Walsh, who wrote yes. the book Astro Weeks, and he delves more into that. No, and, he, uh, he, 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 I, I'd like to mention and acknowledge yeah. that.
1: Yeah. Uh, I was a primary source for Ryan in mm-hmm. the book. He mentions me a lot. Yeah. And we all owe Ryan a great debt. Absolutely. And, and I think that Ryan uh, turned a national focus. I mean, that was published by Viking, and it got national coverage and national reviews. A- and so that kind of opened up the door of people thinking about, you know, so that, that preceding my book makes my book, in a sense, is a sequel yeah, this to the is, Ryan Walsh.
0: Yeah, this know? is why I'm so happy to get this time with you. Right. I'm, I, I was born in Philadelphia, but I've lived yeah. most of my life now in Boston, and I'm okay. very... Uh, proud of being here and this history which i'm re- i'm really still just learning right. about your book ryan's book and bill lichtenstein's documentary about right. wbcn which just came out or is starting to roll out really tells that story in this sort of re- well all three of these are starting to tell i, the story. I would cool. i would
1: i would respectfully add another book please uh, uh steve nelson wrote a book Unfortunately, most of the book is not about that. I mean, like it's at the end of the book, he talks about his very important role with uh, uh, the Boston Tea Party and these new bands coming in, like, and he talks about Led Zeppelin and so on and so forth. One of the interesting anecdotes about that is that Led Zeppelin was newly formed. Mm -hmm. They really didn't have much material. Yeah. And so. Played a lot
0: of blues tunes. So probably. they just jammed and yeah. jammed
1: and jammed and jammed for hours. Yeah. And famously, um, John Landau, at that point, a critic for Rolling Stone, trashed them. Mm. <laughs> and that, you know, and, you know, people have come back to Landau about that. I mean, like, how could you, how could you try? And, and, no, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. It wasn't. It wasn't Led, Led Zeppelin. It was Cream. Oh, okay. There was a very famous put-down of Cream. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I interviewed Landau for the book. And yep. not, inter- he, I couldn't talk to him personally. He was very difficult to reach, but he did do an online you know, an email interview in which yes. that's that's been talked about. It's an
0: it's a really important chapter, and actually this I le- think so. this, this yeah. leads me to one of the things I wanted to ask you about. And Landau, for anybody who doesn't know, he's the one who famously quote unquote saw the future of rock and roll. And Absolutely, it, it Bruce he Briste, sure did. <laughs> Which was an article he wrote uh, in the early seven in he the wrote early seventies. I think he wrote it for the Real Paper. For the real paper, and he saw Springsteen in Harvard Square, right. and uh, I think Bonnie Raitt played that night too, or somebody. That's else. correct. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but the, the thing I you mentioned Brandeis a couple of times. Landau went to Brandeis. He did. You went to Brandeis. Janet Maslin went to Brandeis. Oh, right? I didn't.
1: I didn't know that Janet did. I no. think that's
0: in the book. But, um, but it, it's possible. Even know. if she wasn't, I guess I, I'm interested in this the fact that there are so many writers. Who were part of this alternative media scene, right. who went on to really extraordinary things, and um, that's another aspect of this that I think is important—that uh, it was uh, Boston was a breeding ground for music, also for theater. I think it's always been that as right, well, right. Uh, and for these writers who've gone right. on. Right. Landau became Springsteen's manager and other right. things, but. Um, and, Br- and 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 uh, Landau also, when he became
1: a reviews editor at. Uh, at uh Rolling Stone he recruited a lot of these Boston writers like and right. one of the very important ones of course was Stephen Davis mm-hmm. uh, who wrote for the Cambridge Phoenix and so on and Stephen Davis has like 32 books you know something wow. and you know he's done all the band biographies and so on and so forth I mean so Stephen you know was a huge hugely important person in in terms of rock media whatever and uh 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 Who's the guy? You you know? Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the John Perellas. Oh right, yeah. Uh, at, at now at the New York Times, you know, we wrote for a publication published in East Boston, a review called the Regional Review. hmm uh, Amazing people were around. Paul
0: Solomon. Paul Solomon,
1: yeah, you know, absolutely. Paul Solomon was a Brandeis person and went on to TV news and yeah, and other a things very like that. A W.B. Uh, uh, yeah, Channel Two WGBH. He's the oh, okay. he's the economic yep. reporter for. Mm-hmm. So uh, and, and and I asked those questions to both Annie Reisman and Harper Barnes. You know, like, and you know Harper. I think it was Harper talks about Bo Burlingham. Mm-hmm. You know, so so that,
0: yeah, there were major, major, major writers that got their chops right. here. So what was it that made it? a great breeding ground for these writers. I mean there wasn't it wasn't that there was more going on in Boston than say New York or San Francisco necessarily, but there was many publications or what why do you think it was such a great breeding ground? <laughs> well, I writers? think you can you can
1: write out New York, you know, with one stroke of the pen. You know, New York was The Village Voice, yeah, which by that point had, you know, become you know, institutional and then there was uh, uh, something called the East Village Heller, mm-hmm. under Walter Boart, and that kind of faded and disappeared. Uh, and uh, the Bob Fass, on you know, there was, there was stuff, but but the orientation of New York was big and commercial. Like when I lived there, I remember seeing uh, the Rascals at Trudy Heller. You oh know, wow! And, you know, there, there, there wasn't kind of. It, you know yeah there was the Greenwich village folk scene and and Dylan talks about that in his book and mm-hmm. but you know and then San Francisco was all this hippy dippy shit you right. know i mean they were all you know th- being in love and you know the the gay community and you know
0: I, I i don't think they had the focus yeah well it seemed after reading Ryan's book and and yours like it, there seemed to be a more of a seriousness more of a, uh, in a darkness too at times uh, in in what was going on in Boston and out there on the uh, in San Francisco it it was like you say it was more um, that continuation of the summer of love as opposed it just seemed like really important work was happening here and it's only now I feel in these last few years that we're really starting to hear well, more about it. Well, you know, that.
1: isn't you know. Um, I invited Ryan to come here to the club where we are having this interview, the right. Saint Patolf Club, and he came with Astrid and I and had dinner and mm-hmm. um, I had a chance to meet him and talk to him and I tape recorded it actually. Oh great! And I said to him, "You know, like Ryan, why did your book stop? At, mm-hmm. You know, you covered 1968. That's it. You know, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that happened after that that you don't even get into. And interestingly enough, the conversation." Revealed that he had deep knowledge of it, but that he had kind of made a, um, a static curatorial des- ed- editing, you know, decision to like I'm going to bookend it here. And of course, you know, what sells that book is Van Morrison. Yeah, you know, so so he had a great hook, you know. Yeah. yeah. But. I mean, I you know I say to I say to Ryan, you know, when are we going to get the next book? And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and he, you know, he's kind of a little vague about it. Right. I, I don't necessarily think that he would do another Boston-based book, mm-hmm. you know, or do a chapter two of of Astral Weeks. I don't think so.
0: Well, and to go to what you just brought up, what happened after nineteen sixty-eight? I, I did want to ask you about that. Your book covers ni- goes from nineteen sixty-eight to the eighties. So, how did things evolve throughout? the 70s and then come to what sounds to me from reading your book like things sort of petered out as far as this counterculture movement in boston and
1: that's a sad story and uh actually you know read the charles laquanera chapter and in terms of what happened at wbcn um wbcn went from being outrageous to you know they they went through a a, a management change i mean hastings sold it and new management came in there was the famous wbcn strike which you know i cover in the book and it's actually the cover of the book mm-hmm. um All right and things kind of like it got too big and there was too much money involved and it became too commercial mm-hmm. and you know wbcn is is broadcasting Patriots games on Sunday mm-hmm. you know and Howard Stern comes in and bumps out Charles Laquadera yeah you know so I mean that's the kind of the handwriting on the wall right and uh, now you know when Aston and I come to Boston we don't recognize this place anymore mm-hmm. I mean it's just you know so much construction I mean the south end is now all high-rise and condo and it's not the same city it's like right. Brandeis which was when I went there, it was one of the most radical institutions in America, is now the Jewish Tufts. <laughs> you know, it's. I don't think, as a university, I don't think its intellectual status is any greater than Tufts mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, Middlebury or, or any other good, you know, bourgeois, middle-class institution, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where, you know, like, uh, when I was at Brandeis, it was outrageously radical. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, uh uh abby hoffman was a senior when i was a freshman uh angela davis i used to know from the snack bar mm-hmm. you know, she we, went to brandeis yeah to, she yeah. did she yeah. was a disciple of herbert Marcuse. and but angela was this poor girl from atlanta mm-hmm. and you would see her you know and, and hang out and talk and have coffee and and my my lab partner blew up a bank Yikes! Okay, I I, I part of a lab assignment, perhaps. I flunked freshman chemistry, and my you know I'm reading the New York Times, and it says, you know, bank blown up by weather people, and it gave her name, and
0: I said, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my la- you know, so that was the environment. So, do you see any people? Community organizations picking up this mantle of counterculture, alternative press, trying to sort of push things in, in a in a positive direction. I mean, we're living in a moment right now where it where there's a lot of chaos and disquiet in this right. country and in the world. You mentioned the, that every day was a peak experience, not all good in 1968. Right. Some people think today is like that. But from what you say, I think it it sounds like it was more chaotic back in 68. Um so I mean, I'm actually kind of curious. Yeah, actually, what do you think about that?
1: Um, I had the good fortune of being interviewed for uh, by WBUR, mm-hmm. uh, the what do they call that? The artery.
2: Mm-hmm, right. Uh,
1: this young woman talked to me at great length, Olivia Deng. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was clearly you know young, smart. She had done her homework, mm-hmm. and uh, she really asked good questions. You know, she was you know a rising young journalist. Mm-hmm and she asked me this very question and i said to her, olivia it's your turn <laughs> you know the torch now passes to you yeah you know we've done our job we're just a bunch of old guys you know <laughs> but that this is the huge message and hopefully it would be wonderful if this book would be a resource to young readers you know that you know young people getting into the media you know trying to do some of the things that we've done you know like in jazz rock and roll in media and film and, you know, reporting and journalism, would read this book and say, well, these were the founding fathers. This is this is this this book is the Hamilton musical of alternative culture.
0: You know, <laughs> I mean, soon to be a major motion picture. Ooh, there's a mu- an idea for a musical right there. <laughs> right, <Okay>. yeah.
1: <laughs> Maybe it could be, you know, an avatar battle in the, <laughs> in the, in the newsroom and people mm-hmm. fighting each other. And, you know, I mean, I hold my breath... And just look to these young people and just hope upon hope upon hope. But the trouble is they've they've got too many bills. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they get out of school. I mean, you know, what was college tuition back then? It was like five thousand, six thousand a year or something, with room and board. I mean you could go to a state college for a few hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, even state colleges are now thousand I mean, what is a year of Berkeley? Oh, it's it's around seventy. That's ridiculous. Yeah, you yeah. you you're, you're spending seventy thousand dollars a year, hoping to become a musician. Right? Are you out of your mind? I, I, I can't disagree with you. You know, yeah. I mean that's insanity. I know. So how does somebody come out of you know that situation, owing hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and now going into the arts from from RISD, from you know from from uh, uh, Berkeley? And hoping to have a life and career in the arts, the only way they can is to go right for the jugular of the most commercial thing that they could possibly Man. do, which is why I think the music sucks. Yeah. I have no interest in contemporary music. You know, uh, you know, I don't bother watch the Grammys. I could give a fuck about it. You yeah. know, what I mean, I don't care. Yeah. You know, the, the music is like, and these people are
0: so big and such huge stars mm-hmm.
1: and. They mean nothing.
0: Yeah. You know, a, uh, a couple quick things. The, the, it, I, I agree with what you're saying about the money in higher education, and it needs to be fixed. Schools try to do something about it and ameliorate costs, but it, it, it's, you're right. You, you, many people come out of school. It's hard to believe you have an arts career starting with a couple hundred thousand dollars in loans you have to pay off. I will disagree about music with you. Okay. I, I think you're right about what the industry pushes right I'm not into that either but I do think that there are still a lot of great musicians I work at a radio station WUMB I have a music show okay. I still think there's people making good music interesting music but the stuff uh, that the music that makes money um, it's not that interesting okay anymore, what's you know
1: what's coming out of Boston today on a, on a level with Jay Giles cars uh, uh, Boston? uh Aerosmith I mean is there anything coming out of Boston
0: at this point on that level uh well not bands that what they have a national exposure Ryan Walsh's band's pretty good Hallelujah the Hills (laughs) they don't they they, they don't quite have uh (laughs) uh, you know sort of national exposure yet but no I hear what you're saying I mean is there a network I mean can you
1: as I did back in the day go out and see contemporary music or national touring acts five nights, six nights a week in clubs, concerts, you know, is, yeah. does
0: that exist? You're hitting on another problem that there aren't really as many places, uh, for those kinds of bands to play right, right now. Right. There are some, but I, uh, there's no place like the Boston tea party. I don't Where's the rat. Yeah. Well, the rat's gone. Um, is there another rat? Uh, there mm-hmm. are some pretty decent s- clubs in Boston, is there spit? Like, <laughs> is there the Tea
1: Party? Is no. there is there the crosstown? You know, whatever it was. You know, is there the Golden Vanity? Is there the Turk's Head? I mean, you know, you could go on and on and on. Well, the is, thing-
0: is, there a Club Forty Seven? Is there a Club Passim? Well, it is still here. I don't know if you if you consider it the same as it was back then. We're what, not the Club Passim. Well, Passim is still in Harvard Square. Right. You know, but you're not getting. Uh, you know dylan 's not playing there, but of course dylan 's not the Dylan that he was when he was playing there it 's a whole he 's a whole right. different can of worms in my mind there are There are small clubs in town where bands can play there 's a lot of great local musicians in this okay. town. Um, where you can go and have a beer and hear incredible musicians like Duke Levine and Tim Gearon and Dennis Brennan and all these people. People but I don't know, but I'm glad. People to hear you don't know, but but I'm still I'm passionate about well, I'm, the Boston music scene. Well, I'm glad to hear scene. that. I'm, I'm excited to hear that. But I don't know that it's it's a feeding it's a breeding ground for Led Zeppelin and the Velvet Underground. But and you know, like to, that. to flip your question, yeah. we now we now live in the
1: Berkshires. Okay, and Western
0: Mass, the, beautiful Western
1: Mass, and one of the greatest losses of our life is the is that that is no longer available to us. You know, there is no music scene, period. In Western Mass. Correct. You know, Now, for example, we go to Tanglewood, and this summer we saw Reba McIntyre. Mm-hmm. There might be about six things at Tanglewood a year that we see.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so you're a country music fan.
1: I wasn't until the Ken Burns. Oh yeah, I yeah. think we we yeah.
0: we watched the Ken Burns. We were astonished.
1: Yeah, it was pretty educational. Yeah. Oh, not not just educational. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, to come to really feel for. Yeah. You know, this is something I, I had never really, you know, I knew of some of these musicians, but I never really listened to them, and now I really want to go back and and know George Jones mm-hmm. and and That's uh, an amazing uh, story, uh yeah. you, you know I mean. George, I mean, I knew of George Jones. Interesting enough, uh, uh, Walter Lee uh, uh, of Capitol Records, I think Merle Haggard was on. And there was a time when Walter was saying to me, you know, you know, I think that country music can play in Boston. And there was a plan to bring uh, uh, Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings into mm-hmm. Symphony Hall or something mm-hmm. like that. And and he was convinced that it would sell and that there would. Be people that would actually show up and listen to it, and it never happened, mm-hmm. you know. So, so it, Boston had a country station or whatever, but country was never part of the mix. And uh, John Lincoln Wright and the Sour mm-hmm. Mash Boys, and there were, you know, the Charles River Valley Boys. There were a few, you know, so bluegrass. I think was always around. Yep, um, that was part of the mix. Uh, Bill Monroe, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, part of an aspect of the folk scene, a off of the folk scene. Sure. But, um, you know, uh, I think we all have to rethink all the time. You mm-hmm. know, like, that, uh, you know, we, we sat there on the couch riveted by yeah. that series.
0: What I loved about it was that it, it really reminded us that what's important is the song you know, that it's really about writing a great song and say what you want about some country artist. But that was really, to me, what so much of that was about, what but, goes into a great song.
1: But I, I want to slip in with a negative here, <laughs> which is that, you know, considering that I know little or nothing about country music, yep. um, I thought it was credible, wonderful, insightful. You know, I was deeply moved by it. I know a lot about jazz. Mm-hmm. And I thought the Ken Burns series sucked. Okay. You know, I thought it was really a travesty, mm-hmm. in the sense that one of the things they did was reverse racism. They wrote the white musician out of it. Mm-hmm. Where the where the hell was Bill Evans? Mm-hmm. You know, where was Jerry Mulligan? Where where was where was Stan Getz? You know, you know, you had Talking Heads like Wynton Marcellus and Stanley Crouch, and they were you know clearly biased to that. You know, uh, jazz is black music. There's no denial. You know, there's no denial. But from the very, very earliest days, I mean, like, I happen to be a fan of the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Mm-hmm. I thought they put out some, like, stable, stable yard blues, you know. They were a very, very credible organization. Now, their claim that they're the first jazz, of course, is historically false and yeah. reprehensible and perhaps even racist but there was Jack Teagarden, there was uh, Big Spiderbeck. There were always yeah. white players, you know, Pee Wee Russell, you know, uh, uh, Eddie Condon. There were always those guys yeah. around. You know, can you really dismiss Glenn Miller? Mm-hmm. Can you really dismiss Benny Goodman? Can you really dismiss Stan Kenton? Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, so I thought, you know, as, a, as somebody who knows something about the music, I thought that was a, that was a disservice. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah,
0: yeah, I definitely hear you there. I think uh, I think it did seem like it was a conscious decision in in the jazz series to leave some of those folks out, uh, or to give them less attention. I also understand how difficult it is to cover 100 years of of history right. and do it in 16 hours or whatever it was. Right. Right. Um, so there's so much we can talk about, but I, I, I am well, going to, I, I'm going to try to steer this to a conclusion. Maybe we can why? <laughs> keep it running. This uh, is great. It's true. It's let's like, just keep going. We're not know. on the air or anything. There's yeah, no commercial exactly. break we have to go to. Right. Um, you know, you talked about the climate in, which late- is why I'm liking Sirius now. Oh, right. Sirius is reintroducing me to music
1: because mm-hmm. I, I don't like radio you I know mean, i don't like i don't like a dj that's voicing their personality on me i don't like listening to the idiotic ads and so i'm enjoying Sirius now that is reintroducing me to you know they have really great dj's mm-hmm. and the guy that does i mean they have different people we listen to in their jazz channel they have good taste yeah you know yep. and and also i like the mix of old classical music that i grew up with and also some of the new performances yep. that i don't hear yeah you yep. know and and i love uh classic vinyl you know yep. so i mean I'm, I'm liking what Sirius does and i think that this idea of you know the podcast yep. without you know you know let's talk you know yeah. let's let's be free let's yeah. let's communicate and not sell ads or sell ourselves mm-hmm. i mean i'm not here to sell myself you know uh, well, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> there is a book. You can yeah. buy it at uh, Berkshire but, Fine Arts. But 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 I am here really passionately yeah. to sell the ideas. This book cost me a lot. Yeah. You know, I self-published. It was very expensive. It was a big project, and it's very hard to sell a book. It's very hard to get any promotion. And you know, sometimes you sort of think, "What the hell are you doing? Are you insane?" Mm-hmm. But. You know, I feel that it's a legacy. And that was what everyone felt talking to me. Yeah. You know, like each of these guys that I talked to, you know, would tell you that, you know, I loved being involved in this project. Yeah. Because collectively we have a story to tell. We were a great generation. We did phenomenal things. We were too stoned and too crazy and too high most of the time to even stop and think what we were doing. Right. (laughs) <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing and yet you step back from it you know in a more sober older age on life support mm-hmm. while you still can and you you look back at it and you say that was a huge chapter in american culture absolutely. and that boston was absolutely the epicenter of it mm-hmm. there's no and it's time that the world recognize that boston you know interestingly enough when when uh, Brian, the publicist, was trying to promote people on the. He sent out to a lot of national. Brian Coleman, who's Brian also Coleman. been on this podcast, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And and he he shared with me a response from some national individual, and uh, commented that he wasn't interested because it's too, the book is too Boston centric. Hmm. And I thought about that, and I said, you know, what a stupid thing to say. Yeah, because. In fact, yeah, this book is about Boston in the same sense that Ryan's book, uh, you know, Astral Weeks is about Boston, about a moment when um, uh, Van Morrison was here for a little period of time, and that's the hook for the book. But that things of global importance were happening here yeah. in Copley Square. Mm-hmm. You know, and that uh, after all, the shot heard around the world was not far from here. Mm -hmm. It was Lexington Bridge. Right. You know, so that Boston has always been the center of an American revolution. And I think that Bill Coleman's film got it absolutely right. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish that his, the time frame of his film, I wish went more into like the BCN strike and so on. I think it's cut off a little bit too early. Bill Lichtenstein's film. Bill Lichtenstein, right. Yeah. But I think that Bill Lichtenstein's film does a service. And I think he's absolutely right Mm -hmm. that the torch for the counterculture passed from San Francisco in 67 to Boston in 68. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge story. Yeah. And that's really important. Yes. And that's what the book... That you can get at Amazon.com. <laughs>
0: Not that you're selling it. Yeah, is really important. I agree. I think it's really important to read this book. Uh, did you like the book? I did. I did, and like I said, I Was, mean, is that a real emotion? <laughs> <laughs> Are you faking it? Here, okay. Here's the truth. <laughs> Uh, right. here, uh, Brian Coleman gave me the book like three days ago oh, four days kidding. ago so i i and i have a i have a busy life right. I, I i read it more quickly than right. I, I than I would have liked to, but sure. no this is the stuff i 'm the kind of person who this book is written for right. i've spent my whole life interviewing people too right, um, right. I want to collect something like this right. someday you're you're right. you're instructing me on how to do this, how to live, how to reflect on life, and to try to make sure that uh, you tell a story about what's important and what can you're I give on. you can I give you a hint? I would love it yes
1: <laughs> take good notes <laughs> you know I mean um, what the dilemma that I faced was that I'm putting it all together The book is very well illustrated with photographs oh yeah that's why the hell didn't I start shooting earlier <laughs> What about all those acts that I never photographed What about all those? you know, uh, uh, tapes that I made that I can't find, you know, I think, I think that, you know, I, I would hope that you would do that. Yeah. And that, you know, now that I'm at the legacy point in my life, you know, what, what is becoming huge for me and people I talk to is what becomes of our archives. Yeah. And so I've fortunately had a great conversation with a archivist by the name of Robert Cox at UMass Amherst, who who now represents something like 80 photographers, hmm. he he did the Bill Lichtenstein archival work, and so all that Bill Lichtenstein WBCN archive is going to UMass, and you know there needs to be a place. That, and and uh, Cox is willing to take my entire archive, you know, which is film, slides, negatives, you know, all prints, whatever, and the idea is to have this someplace. That it's available in perpetuity to to new new generations are going to come along and wonder you know Boston wow you know look at look at all those bands mm-hmm. look at look at all those people that came out of there and and when that starts to happen this book counterculture from 1968 to 1980s will be a primary resource and that's why it's important that this book also includes a bibliography mm-hmm. you know. To read, you know, I want you to go from this book to find the others. Right. You know that there's now hopefully a growing list of, of books and media and things, projects coming out that will have
0: in turn more and more and more attention to yeah, the, what went on here. The back of this book has a has about I don't know 30 30 yeah, something like that. thirty books or so listed that that uh, were important in the making of it. You, you know, and one thing that would be cool if you do another edition of this someday okay. is an index. Uh, uh, that came up It's, it's, it's just, a lot of work It's a lot of expense Yeah <laughs> Maybe you could hire me to, to do your index for you That would get me To read it really carefully What would you charge <laughs> Well let's talk about That off air um, But uh, yeah. it, You know it, It's If a, you come cheap <laughs> <worth> Alright <talking about. laughs> You know well, yeah, well, we, Maybe we can figure Something out yeah. um, I, the, I bring it up really Because there are So many people Facts so many, Figures right. Moments Like there's right. the, the Harvard Square riots Which right. I knew Nothing about right. And I bet There's a lot Lot more written about it somewhere but you described there, it no, as the, the point is that there isn't is that right there isn't so like, why don't you quickly tell that yeah, story I, a I, bit.
1: okay um this is a funny anecdote yeah you know when i went when i was writing for the herald um i could get a police press pass which was something you clipped onto your your thing so that you know it was for reporters if they were covering a crime scene or a fire or whatever the police would you know, give them access to do their reporting, mm. and so you know, I, I asked if I could get one, you know, because I was covering you know big events at you know uh, the Boston Garden here or there. So, but I showed up in a riot in Harvard Square with my little press thingy. <laughs> you know, what so, year was this? Oh, there had been sixty nine, okay. something like that. Yeah, and uh, you know, it, it was shit was going down. And I'm in Harvard Square, and I'm thinking, well, if it gets really bad and the cops start charging, you know, I'll just pull out my <laughs> press, press, <laughs> and and the storm will pass me by. Mm-hmm. And so there I was in Harvard Square, and uh, the police started marching into the square, and they were in riot gear with shields and batons, and, and they started advancing in down uh, down uh, um, Harvard Avenue. What is uh, can I ask you what what was uh, really the subject of the protest? It anti-war, you, okay, know, Vietnam. I mean, you know, Vietnam, anti-war. Yep. And then uh, some kid threw a brick through a window, and that was it. You know, th- at that point the cops charged. I I'm for the first time in my life I'm suddenly in the middle of a riot. Mm. You know, I mean I was in the Newport riot, but I mean this is really serious shit going on. You know, with cops and tear gas and you know riot gear and and they're charging, and and you know you you get caught up in a crowd. You can't swerve left or right. You know mm-hmm. you'll be tra- stampeded. And I veered off to the left, and you know around. Uh, you know we're going toward the Harvard Bridge, and I went down a side street. I just managed to get out, and I went through back courtyards and so on. So I ended up at the other end of Harvard Square. Okay, and I'm I'm. Standing there, watching buses full of police going by, and there are three guys standing there uh you know uh, looking at this, and you know they you know I can't remember they didn't look like hippies, they looked like straight guys, but one was wearing a long coat like a trench coat. He pulls out a Molotov cocktail hmm. and says. Hey, man, you want one? You know, we're going to off the pigs. And at that point, a bus is going by loaded with police in a school bus. And the guy is handing me a Molotov cocktail. And, you know, I'm a rock and roll reporter, you know.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) know? Which is, for anybody who doesn't know, that's basically like a hand grenade sort of. uh, uh, A a Molotov
1: cocktail is any bottle filled with gasoline and a, a rag. And you light it, and if you if you if it hits the bus, it explodes, and you can take out a tank. Yeah, and that's why it was, you know, called the Molotov
0: cocktail. So they hand it to you, or no. they try to hand it to you. And
1: I I just said, uh, no man, I'm I'm cool, you know. Yeah, it later occurred to me that if I had taken that, those guys are undercover. They were FBI. Who knows what. The minute I grabbed that thing, I, my fingerprints would be on that Molotov cocktail. I'd be spending the rest
0: of my life in jail as a terrorist. Hmm.
1: You know, So that is my take on it.
0: Yeah, and, and actually in reading that anecdote in the book, you described the scene later on. It might have been like o- over in Boston at that point with the running of the bulls right. over yeah. by like Boylston Street or something right. like that. Yeah. So like everybody was just in a mad sprint away right, from Right,
1: right. So it was it was a scary time, you yeah. know. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, and I went home that night and, and read the paper the next day, and I wanted to know if, you know, those bombs had been thrown. Mm. And there was no reporting of it. Oh, that's good. So... So clearly, it was just you know an undercover scam to so just sleazy. nab up
0: somebody, you know, yeah. and
1: implicate them and ruin their life.
0: So uh, I I want to ask that's tough. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, it's a it's a brutal technique, and you know, it, it's it, it's a yeah. but you know, even like working in the
1: underground press at that time, you didn't know who was yeah. infiltrating into you. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there there's no doubt about it that there were. You know, people that were showing up and, hey, man, you know, like, you know, can I help or, you know, you don't know who they are.
0: Wasn't Nixon keeping a list of some oh, of yeah. you guys at that time?
1: Oh, as a matter of fact, Arnie Reisman, uh, through Freedom of Information Act, got his file. Oh, yeah. And uh, he talks about it and, and that the file contained an annotated copy of the Phoenix. Oh, wow. <laughs> with, oh, that's with, a helpful, that could be kind of useful Uh, uh and it was initial J E H. Oh my God, J. Sir H. Hoover. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean they were. You know, I mean, I've never gone through official secrets, but it's likely that my name is there somewhere. I mean, I. Like to think it is, you yeah, know. yeah. I'd be flattered to
0: think it is. <laughs> uh. So now I am going to try to draw this to a conclusion. Okay, good Much luck. as I don't want good to, luck. good <laughs> luck. <laughs> um, Give it a try. Yeah. I'm going to do that. And you, you mentioned your artwork. We haven't even talked about that at all right. uh, So That's I, okay. I just want to. I just want to, uh, uh, and we or nor the website right. uh, and publication that you and your co-conspirator, wife and partner over here, Astrid, Astrid, Astrid yeah, um, yeah. Berkshire Fine Arts, is it dot com? Yes. Um and you know, you mentioned the fact that it's much harder to do the sort of uh you, you described the newsroom of the sixties when right. hey, you do this, you do that and, right, and you right, it, right. now you the two of you and others are, right. are doing this grassroots right. publication and I was, the person I keep thinking about while we're talking is Chris Ferrone who's the editor of Dig Boston. Are you familiar okay. with that? I hear the name. So they're doing really good and important alternative press yeah, work I hear these that. days. Yeah. But hear um, But the internet has given us, in a, in a way, it, it, it's reopened some of these possibilities right. and you you yourself have created an example of it. So how do you uh, make that engine go? You're publishing all the time on that website. You have, would, you ever, have you looked at I've it? I've been looking have been, uh, you know, you're covering theater and and right. and and music, a lot of music stuff on there. Right. Uh, you wrote about uh, Rico Cossack. You wrote something about Rico Cossack right, after right. he died recently yeah. of the cars. So, I'm glad you saw that. You know? Well, I mean, I like to prepare for an interview. You no, know, but you I'm have. glad somebody is looking at it. You know? <laughs> well, so that's what I was... Yeah. Well, you. you yeah. there, um, I read something where you said uh, where you were getting quite a lot of views on that website.
1: Um, it varies. Uh, you know, everything changes. I mean, it, even even... Even the internet is not what it was even five years ago. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, it's insane, you know, in terms of if you're trying to keep up with the curve, uh, uh, you know, Facebook is obsolete. Right. You know, face. I mean, I think Facebook yeah. at this point sucks. Yeah. You know, like, I have supposedly 4,000 members or whatever. They don't see, you know, if I post something, you're lucky if 100 Two hundred. Yeah. Your favorite, you know. So Zuckerberg has 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 killed that. Yeah. You know, and he's an asshole. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, total asshole. And so Facebook sucks. Yeah, I uh, no argument here about anything. You know, and so so you know this this you know we we've been we've been this sophistry going on. We've been false prophets have yeah. told us the wonders of our world, and they don't exist. And so the reality is that. You know, you do the best you can. You put out your word. You put out your product. And, and that's why I'm here. Yeah. You know, with yep. a, a little podcast with a few hundred yep. loyal fans. It's enough. Yeah. You know, if somebody out there is touched by what we had to say today, yep. that's enough. Yeah, exactly. I agree. You know? I agree. Uh, similarly, if we put out something and uh, somebody remembers Rick Orkastic or whatever and sees that piece And uh, get some insight to that moment. It's not about the numbers, you know. Uh, I mean, and then the numbers, you know, national media, whatever. I mean, who the hell are they? Yeah. You know, these pundits, you know, as they call them, you know. Forget about the pundits. uh, How about the politicians? Hmm. You know, I mean, we were, you know, we were just glimpsing it. We were doing something else last night, so we didn't watch the debate. But, I mean, you know, come on, you know. Yeah.
0: Uh, uh who are these people well uh like you say uh, you said it earlier and uh, everything you say sort of underscores the point it's about ideas it's not absolutely about, it's not about money absolutely and I think that uh, we th- this is you know you talk at least there's a Bernie and and Elizabeth Warren are talking about uh trying to sort of flip that idea around a little bit uh, but let me let me turn
1: back to you yeah. in, in a way. You mentioned that you teach at Berkeley. Yep. These are super bright kids. Yep. Um the assumption is that if they've matriculated to Berkeley, they've got something going in yep. terms of they have talent, they have maybe resources behind them. Yep. You know, they're paying seventy thousand dollars a year uh to invest in a future that does not exist. You know, like if a hundred kids come out of Berkeley, one will make it. At odds, you know, and I'm just pulling a number. What
0: or two? Yes, it's true. Yeah, are you I, gonna? I, I, I'm gonna. No, I'll, I'll push back on that a little okay, bit. Okay, all I, right. I can wait until you finish what okay, you're saying.
1: Okay. My question to you is: You deal with these young people every day. Yeah. What are they? What are they conveying to you? What is their hope and dream? What are they? Yeah. What do they? Re, do they know the odds? Are they? Are they realistic about it? I mean, are, are they, do they have?
0: that sense of drive and commitment to push through and make it happen. Well, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before in a sense that I don't think it's just about being Led Zeppelin or, or a huge national act. I think it's, uh, you know, part of what the flatter world has provided to us in the internet is opportunities for people to make a living if not lucrative like uh reba mcintyre or robert plant still like a decent living now Um, So I think that there are opportunities to do moderately well. So in the one out of 100 or two out of 100, what Berkeley is doing, and I used to be director of communications. My whole job was to advertise the school, and now I'm faculty. So I feel very different about it when I talk about it. But, the, um, you know, you can study music therapy. You can study music education. You can study music production. So it's not that everybody comes in. Thinking that the only path is to be a rock star, to right. be a Reba McIntyre or or uh, Norah Jones or whoever. Right. Um, Snora Jones. Uh, okay, fair enough. Uh, I like some of her stuff, but um, really, yeah, Why? sure. Yeah, Why? Because I, I think it's. I think it's. Why? Uh, Why? Some of it's not Why? that bad, Charles. Some of it's not that good. Fair enough. Okay, I agree. And some of the Led Zeppelin isn't that good as well. A lot know? of Led Zeppelin yeah. is not that good. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So nobody's perfect That's why every, every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, her father was pretty good. <laughs> Ravi Shankar. Yeah, yeah. He was okay. Yeah. He was pretty good. He had, right, he had yeah. some good moments. He had some chops. <laughs> <laughs> if you like the sitar, you know, yeah, right. um, and I do, but the, so uh, there are, you know, the internet has provided more opportunities for people. You don't have to rely on a record deal necessarily right. to make money. Right. You, uh, it, it's hard to make money through streaming though. Streaming sucks as a right, way of right. making money for a musician. Right. Um, do I feel a little bad, weird, awkward, guilty when i'm a part of a music transaction that it costs two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollars yeah it's It's a very weird feeling, and when I'm in the classroom, I try to talk about. Who, uh, you know, it's not just about being a pop star. That's why I teach writing. And this is a skill that could be very useful to you. Uh, I mean, writing, there, writing, not writing music. Writing sentences and not, paragraphs. Not, not music, writing. No, I don't teach writing music. I teach writing, writing essays. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, so we're trying to give a, a well rounded education. And, right. and I talk about the fact that there are opportunities to make money. There are people in my class right now who are really good writers. And I, and I told them this week, I said, you could actually publish and make money money as a writer. You might not get rich right. doing that. I talked to them about podcasting. You're, they're learning how to produce audio. There's opportunities to do more of right. that. So the number I think is higher than one or two out of a 100. It may not be 50 out of a 100 right. who are going to make a decent living. Um, and the other thing that that I think we talk about at Berkeley and that I think more young people have as an opportunity is entrepreneurship mm-hmm. they can do things on their own it's a hard way to go but i think there are more people who come out of college and try to do their own right, thing right. and if you do a lot of different things like a charles giuliano right. uh, you might be able to put together right. uh, a, a living right. so i feel conflicted about I, it to I, be honest I, I, with you. I would amend that to yeah. say if you're a charles giuliano
1: doing a lot of things yeah you might make a living i would amend that to say you might have a life, yeah, because that's really what it is. Yeah, it's about. Astrid and I, we we're not rich, you yeah. know, but we have a life. A life in the arts. We have a life in the arts. A life and, in the and arts. And Astrid, yeah. you could talk to her for an hour <laughs> yeah. or two about her life in the right. arts. So we have a life in the arts, and that's number one for us. And and we're lucky, you know. We we have the resources. We I mean, we come here and enjoy it and i um, I'm talking about the saint Patolf club yeah. which we've you know had access to, and so it gives us you know an affordable yeah. pied a terre in town <laughs> uh, and you know we've traveled we've we've been all over the world and we've yeah. we've been to china we've been to europe interesting places you know so so we've had a life and that's yeah. you know have we haven't had any money mm-hmm. you know i mean this book is costing me thousands of dollars i won't i when all is said and done you know i'm working to pay the publicist, Yeah, you know, uh, uh, working to pay the designer, and, and good people, and I'm glad to have them, yep. you know, but as far as like, the motive was not to make money. The motive was to, that, you know, it's a way of saying, my life was important, the lives of these people that I'm interacting with were important. The things that we did were important. The, they deserve to survive us. And that this effort will be out there. You know, it, it's in the Library of Congress. I was thrilled yesterday that Pu took a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping that you'll take a book for Berkeley. Absolutely. It should be in colleges. Yep. You know, it should be where some kid rumbling around the library stumbles into this and it picks it up and starts to read it. And says, well, wow, those guys, those old dudes
0: are pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So, listen, uh, thank you for the work, uh, the book, your time today. Uh, I know we could talk more, and maybe we'll get a chance to do it down the road. I really appreciate it, Well, I just want to say
1: one thing about
0: you, that um, I'm thrilled to have this opportunity. And, and again,
1: it's not about the numbers, and it's not about the size, and it's about having an interesting conversation. And And this was a superb interview from my point of view. Oh, thank you, Charles. You know, I mean, I'm talking from my end. I got to get my stuff out <laughs> but you're you're a terrific interviewer you know in the sense of everything that you would want from an interviewer that you're engaged you're knowledgeable you're you're compassionate you can take a punch <laughs> <laughs> yeah i took a few in this <laughs> one <laughs> that's you okay know. i like and it. you can give back and, and and not in a mean-spirited way wow and what more do you want out of an interview
0: well thank you so much charles i really appreciate it Learn more about Charles Giuliano and his work at BerkshireFineArts.com. And I want to give thanks to Brian Coleman and correct a misstatement I made in this episode. Brian is an excellent author, oral historian, archivist, and publicist. He's featured, in fact, in episode 30 of this podcast. Brian connected me with Charles Giuliano, and he got the book to me well in advance of the interview. During the interview with Charles, I said it was three to four days, but that was not true. That's just when I got my damn hands on it and started reading it. Sorry about that, Brian. And now my pick of the week. In the wake of the PBS country music series that Charles and I discussed, I came across a podcast called The Opus, focusing on the making and impact of the Willie Nelson album "Redheaded Stranger. It's a show made by people from the Chicago-based online magazine Consequence of Sound and by the people at Sony. Each season is three to four episodes long focusing on classic albums such as ones made by Jimi Hendrix, Electric Ladyland, and Bob Dylan, Blood on the Tracks. I've only listened to the Willie Nelson season, but I like it because it goes deeply into the themes of the album. Uh, It talks about Willie's struggles beforehand And how the album ultimately shocked everyone, especially his record company. Even if you don't care for country, it is worth checking out Season 3 of The Opus. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Hoschel.